Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about the real housewives of Beverly Hills and their complicated relationship with the subject of addiction. As listeners of this show know, I have been deeply involved in the drama of Scandival on Vanderpump Rules, Um, but since that has faded and there is not as many juicy episodes to watch, I turned my attention to The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills as Vanderpump Rules is a spinoff of the original Beverly Hills franchise. I started watching from season one, so this is definitely not going to be a play-by-play of every season or every plot line. There's just far too much to talk about, which can be done in other episodes. But one thing that really did stand out for me over the last like eight seasons that I've watched is the way that addiction is talked about in the show and among the castmates. I think that the language used and the types of conversations had about things like alcohol use disorders or uh, illicit substance use is kind of a good microcosm for how the general public understands addiction and substance use. While, yes, the housewives themselves are definitely not the most representative sample of the average person in terms of like wealth or lifestyle, I think in terms of knowledge of addiction, they are good stand-ins for kind of what your average person who maybe hasn't encountered addiction or the mental health world, like how they think or talk about addiction. So to highlight that, I'm going to go through a few examples from the first eight seasons, talk about why they are problematic, and then give you some tips and language for how to better talk about addiction in the future. For those of you who have watched or participated in the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills franchise at all, you're going to know who I'm going to be mostly talking about, and that's Kim Richards. Um, I'm not going to necessarily be talking about like her diagnoses or her specific substance uses, but just the way that her fellow castmates or even herself talked about addiction and maybe some changes that I would suggest moving forward. So without further ado, let's jump in from season one. Season one actually doesn't have anything about addiction show up until the finale of the season. In this episode, we see that Kyle and Kim Richards, who are sisters, have gotten into a fight. They've been fighting off and on throughout the season, but it comes to a head at this final episode. 
Kim appears to be physically intoxicated while she's fighting with her sister and the other ladies on the show. And several of the cast members make a comment about how she doesn't seem to be 100% sober. So maybe this isn't a good time to have this argument. The kind of like iconic or memorable scene from this episode is that Kim is down in her limo trying to leave the party that they were at. Kyle comes down and they sit in the limo and they start having a fight and Kyle screams, you're sick, you're an alcoholic. This creates a very deep rift between the sisters that ripples out through the rest of the seasons as Kim continuously blames Kyle for publicly outing a private matter on television and their other sister, Kathy Hilton, also gets mad at Kyle for this, for basically putting family business out on public. This becomes something that will play a role in Kyle's dynamic with her sisters, that they don't like how much she puts their life and their past out on the internet or out in the, in the public, and Kyle wanting to be open or at least sharing her side of the narrative. But that's not as important. What is important in this example is I think this is a very good example of how alcohol use issues often become handled in families. They become a secret that no one else is supposed to know and that even within the family they don't talk about. From this season onward, Kyle will get visibly upset anytime anyone asks her about her sister's sobriety and kind of fall back to this refrain of, we don't talk about it, we don't talk about it, I don't know, because we don't talk about it. And even will say that it's more healthy for her if she doesn't talk about her sister's sobriety or lack of sobriety. However, this can really build up a lot of resentment if there is one person in a family system who is not doing well, is what we would call like the underfunctioner, and the other people in the family system have to cover up that slack or pick up the slack for the underfunctioner. It builds resentment because one, the underfunctioner is just not functioning. They're not performing at the same level that everyone else in the family is, which can make people feel resentful. And the overfunctioners, the people who are not dealing with the substance use issue, then tend to have to go out of their way more so than they would in the family system to deal with it, right? This can look like the person with the substance use issue always being late to things and the other family members having to make excuses for them or not showing up to pick up their kids. So, you know, auntie, whoever has to come swoop in and pick up the kids because mom or dad were too intoxicated to go get them. We see this a little bit with the Richard sisters in that Kim is chronically late to things. It becomes kind of a punchline. And Kyle is always the one making excuses for her, kind of planning around her, um, knowing that her sister isn't going to be able to be there on time. And that can seem like a little thing, like someone being chronically late, but it's the way that these things add up. And the fact that the other sisters know Kim's lateness or Kim's forgetfulness are because of her alcohol use. It's not an inherent piece of who Kim is. It is related to her alcohol and substance use. So the way that we see the alcoholism or the struggle with alcohol use come out in season one is unfortunately very common. And I would say the the tweak here or the tip that I would recommend is not bringing up someone's substance use when you're already in an argument. So if you happen to be in a relationship or in a family with someone who struggles with substance use, although it often can be the impetus for why you're having conflict with them, throwing it out in the middle of an argument is not going to make any lasting change in that 
it is better to be going into a situation where you can manage your own feelings and the other person is going to be the least likely to feel defensive. So not in the middle of an argument or not after a long day. And you don't want to sit and belabor the point. Okay, you don't want to harp on this is a problem or you don't want to harp on all the ways that they've wronged you. You just want to be able to come in, quickly state the problem, be specific, um, and then offer support. If you go to my sources page, there's a link to a website from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that has some tips for conversation starters um, around alcohol use. So it has some suggested language you could use if that's a conversation that you need to have with someone in your life. I I recommend it as a a starting point to kind of brainstorm where you want to go. So if we could go back in time, I would tell Kyle, don't bring up the alcoholism that you experience your sister going through while you're having a fight about, I don't remember what the fight was about. I think the Kim was upset about a house. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Don't bring up the the alcohol use during a fight like that, but wait until you are calm. Kim is calm and probably not in a public forum like on reality television. Since the cat was out of the bag about Kim's struggles at the end of season one, when we hit the ground running with season two, they're kind of at the forefront of the problems that Kim has with other cast members. The most striking example is the way that Brandy Glanville, who starts off in season two as a new cast member, the way that she interacts with the Richard sisters. Her first interaction with them is at the world's worst game night held at Dana's house, which if you watch the show, you know exactly what I'm talking about, how horrible that game night went. Um, But she ends up getting into a fight with Kyle and Kim because she feels that they're being kind of catty to her. And so to retaliate, she accuses Kim Richards of doing crystal meth in the bathroom. To be fair... What we see on the show is that Kim was very late to the game night. She kept going in and out of the bathroom, and they do film part of her and Kyle in the bathroom, and Kim is saying that she's super anxious, she's having trouble seeing, she started on some new medication, and she just she looks really out of it. And this is another kind of subtle way that I think we can see the family dynamic around Kim's substance use is that Kyle's response to Kim's report of not feeling super great or not feeling up to being there is to do her makeup and encourage her to suck it up and get out there and participate. Whereas perhaps the more healthy response would be to say, why don't you head home? You don't seem like you're in a good spot to be here right now. So this is a way in which Kyle can kind of I don't want to use the word enable, but the way in which Kyle, by trying to hide or gloss over Kim's substance use, may in fact make it worse by putting her in these anxiety-provoking situations where who knows what she ends up needing to do to feel comfortable. And we do find out, you find out later on that Kim was drinking um, during that season, even though she had said she had gone to rehab and was sober. Brandy's accusations to Kim becomes the central reason why Kim hates her for the rest of the season, even though they end up being like BFFs several seasons later. But Kim like absolutely holds this against Brandy. And I think it illustrates this way where in which people can become worried about confronting someone's substance use. Now, 
Brandy did not confront the substance use in a in a positive way or in a healthy way, right? She's making these accusations based, you know, about someone that she's just met for the first time and is definitely not approaching with kindness or empathy. However, the defensiveness that that stirs up in Kim and the reactions that she has to it are often the reasons why people are afraid to bring up problems they see in their loved ones. I can say from my clinical work, working with people who have had someone in their life struggle with alcohol or substance use, this is the hardest part for them because obviously no one's going to be so excited to hear that your loved one thinks you have a substance use issue and that kind of conversation can often be met with a lot of defensiveness, a lot of excuses, a lot of resistance to getting support or getting help. And it's understandable, right? It's it's a vulnerable situation to be in for everybody. But the fear of that defensiveness and the fear of how it might interact with someone's relationship is why people don't bring up problematic substance use that they see in their family or friend. So Kim's uh, reaction to Brandy is, I think, probably a good example of how she reacts to anyone in her life bringing up her potential substance use. It's exaggerated because this is, again, a wild situation and Brandy is making really intense accusations. Um, But she also is pointing out something that no one is willing to point out in Kim's life, that Kim does seem to be acting different and seems to be acting not sober, essentially, while at this game night. My advice in this situation would obviously be not to bring it up. Again, don't bring this up in a fight. You're already having a conflict with this person. Don't bring this up as another example of why you think they're a bad person or why you think they're contributing to the fight, especially because Brandy does not know the Richard sisters well. So if you were, if she were to be someone who wanted to bring this up, she could Maybe wait until she knows them a little bit better. She could pull Kyle to the side to say, I'm worried about your sister. Is there anything I can do to support you? She could try pulling Kim aside and saying, I'm worried about you. Is there anything I can do to support you? But bringing it up as an accusation because you're feeling uncomfortable is not the path that I I would recommend. But I do feel for Brandy in this interaction because, and I don't often say that, I'm not a Brandy fan, <laughs> but I think this this season was, season two is rough for Brandy and the way that Kyle and Kim were treating her was not very nice. For a group of women in their 30s to be acting that way toward each other was not very cool and I can see why Brandy became upset. But I would recommend not throwing it out there as a uh, way to kind of like get a, a leg up in an argument. In season two, we also see the introduction of Kim's very strange boyfriend, Ken. This man rolled into the show with a whole lot of red flags. He was very controlling of Kim and did a lot to really isolate her from her children and her other family members and friends. He would make decisions for her or speak for her very often And he also had a difficult history with substance use and had been arrested for a DUI, I believe, the year before he and Kim started dating. There's also some scenes where Ken on the show interacting with Kim where he does not speak to her very nicely and seems to be pretty irritated with her, but still continues to exert a lot of influence over her life. 
Kim also kept their relationship secret for over a year before she introduced him to Kyle and her other and her other sister. This is a massive red flag if someone is keeping a relationship secret for that long. I can understand keeping a relationship on the DL for a couple of months while you're getting to know each other, especially from your kids. You're not going to want to introduce someone who maybe may not be in their life for a while. But to keep someone a secret for a year is a significant amount of time and just throws up some alarm bells there. Maybe Ken wanted to be kept secret for that long because he was exerting control over Kim. Maybe Kim knew there were things that were off in the relationship, and if she introduced him to her family, they would start to have criticism. Who knows? I, I don't really know. And thankfully, Ken and Kim are did broke up very shortly after the season. But it's still not a great situation to be in a relationship with someone that you're not comfortable bringing them around your loved ones. This is another area where the way that we can maybe talk about substance use can be difficult. The uh, role that like significant others or romantic partners can play in recovery is really important. And oftentimes people take very extreme perspectives on this. So if you are, if you've ever been in like a recovery program, particularly a 12 step program, they generally have rules like you're not allowed to date for your first year in treatment or your first year in recovery or your first year of sobriety. They say absolutely no contact with anyone who could be a romantic partner. The idea is that you're very vulnerable in your first year of sobriety. And so if you did enter into a relationship with someone, then they might, you know, do something that triggers you or upsets you in a way where substance use could become the coping mechanism again. The other end of the spectrum are people who say, like, you should have a partner with you. You should definitely have someone who can support you, but it has to be someone who is also in recovery because people who aren't in recovery don't get it. And the intention being behind it that, you know, you want someone who is on a similar journey as you so that they don't accidentally or maybe even intentionally do things to damage your recovery, right? Like someone who has a problem with alcohol, dating someone who like keeps bottles of wine at home, even though that's been maybe a problem for the person in the past, and just like not thinking of it and just like having that the wine at home, which maybe like creates a temptation for the partner in recovery. I will say in my personal opinion, I don't think having rules that are never do this or only do this is very helpful. Anytime I, <laughs> I hear a, a never or always, I get a little nervous. So I would say that my recommendation would be for each person in recovery to make those decisions for themselves and to sort that out with a trusted other like a therapist, a treatment provider, or, you know, maybe a, a sponsor or a friend who can kind of understand the place they are in in terms of their recovery. I think that there are people for whom romantic relationships are a great source of support and having someone who understands you and can be there for you while you're in a difficult part of recovery can be important. And there are also people who potentially part of the cycle of addiction is having a romantic partner and kind of getting so caught up in a relationship that they forget who they are and then substances can be a, a coping skill to deal with the fallout of conflict in those types of relationships. So I think it's very individualized and I think that, you know, you want to be cautious of who you're around. Um, 
just like anyone else, right? Just because you, someone has an addiction or has a substance use problem doesn't mean that like they, the way they relate to others is all of a sudden so different or foreign. I think for anyone in a relationship, you want to think about, is this the right time for me? Is this a supportive person? And even if Kim had been 100% sober when she was dating Ken, I don't think he would have been a good boyfriend for her anyway. Also in season two, we saw a lot of examples of how the ladies on the cast kind of talk around Kim's behavior such as um, when they go on they go on a trip to Hawaii and Kim is late to the airport they, we find out that she lied to her sister about having a valid ID she is late to a lot of the events once they actually get to Hawaii and she and Ken, spend a lot of their time kind of holed up in their room even though it is like a group trip and it's a work trip so they're kind of they're expected to like hang out together because that's part of their job and the other castmates kind of talk about it as like this is an annoying thing or they'll be like where's Kim but no one wants to say I think that she's not here because she's not sober partly because that's a big accusation and this is something that I think is unique to the conversations that are had on Real Housewives because so many of the kind of fears are about reputation management. And the other ladies on the cast know that if they were to say something like, I think Kim is late because she got drunk, that can do a lot of reputational damage to Kim Richards if in fact she wasn't drunk or even if she is, right? Like just putting that out there is a really big kind of accusation to make. And Beverly Hills... And Hollywood are career are places where careers are really based on reputation. Kim Richards is an actress. Like she was a child actress and has been acting for most of her life. So her career depends on her reputation. If people don't think that she can be trustworthy and show up on time and participate in her job, then she's not going to get hired. She's going to get less and less opportunities. So I would say this is probably the one area in which the conversations on Real Housewives is not like how it is in the general public. I mean, I think that there are people that are not famous, that their reputation still matters. And this is why um, it can be a really big problem in like the medical community or with pilots when there are worries about substance use, uh, problematic substance use, because those are careers where if your reputation is tarnished things like your license can be questioned and you can be investigated. So there is some parallel to that. But I think like the, if I think of the average Joe, like the average person in the community, this might not be something that weighs on your mind when you want to bring something up or you want to um, point out that maybe someone has a substance use issue. Reputation management may not be on the front of your mind. And that's what can make it so frustrating to watch the conversations on Real Housewives because you'll see the women in these situations over and over and over again where it's like clearly Kim is not okay. Clearly Kim is falling apart. And whether it's because she's not sober or because she's in a bad relationship or because she's struggling with her kids moving out, like there's so many reasons. It doesn't just have to be her sobriety, but Kim is clearly struggling in front of them and they just don't say anything. They just don't, they don't know what to do because to say something publicly in the context of the show would be damaging to their reputation. And they're all very, very aware of reputation management. So I guess my advice to the ladies would be, you know, this needs to be a conversation that's done in private. Obviously, if this is 
a big concern. Um, but it's still a conversation that needs to be had when you're this close with someone, particularly given that some of the women on the show are have been friends with Kyle for many years and, you know, have a more intimate relationship with her than just being on the show. And then the last example from season two is also the season finale. Season finales are always the most juicy in in these Bravo shows. But the season finale of season two takes place at Sir, which is Lisa Vanderpump's restaurant. And Kim shows up at this party, clearly intoxicated, not doing well. And I believe there's even footage of her in the limo on the way over. And it looks like she took something. Um, Ken is with her and he's being very weird. So it's, it's just an odd situation. But the time she shows up to the party, she does not seem to be doing well. And she and Kyle sit down to have this conversation. And Kim tells her sister, I want to have another baby. And Kyle is like, okay, <laughs> like not, not what I was expecting to hear. Um, but Kyle just shifts into, I'm so glad that you're talking to me again. Like, whatever, I'll support you and whatever you want. Cause I'm just so happy to have you speaking to me. Cause they had really been up and down, um, through season two. I think this is another example of how Kyle will just kind of smooth things over, sweep things under the rug. And I think that's an incredibly common experience with a family member or a loved one who struggles with substance use. As if you're on the other side, if you're the person who is noticing the problem, you don't want every conversation to be about their substance use. And you're looking for those opportunities when your loved one is themselves again, or at least a little bit more themselves to be able to connect with you. And so when I see Kyle doing that, I see her hanging on to these moments where her sister is her sister and not the person she becomes when she's under the influence. Now, During this episode, she is most definitely under the influence. And so it's not 100% her sister or like her her recollection of her sister, but they're not fighting. And I I can understand how someone who is constantly fighting with a sibling who deals with substance use issues would just jump on the opportunity for, okay, let's have one night where we're not screaming at each other. I just want to enjoy it. And I don't have like too much that I would say to do different here. Like I, I, I understand this. I think it's a very valid behavior. And I think that there are times where you kind of have to, you have to pick your battles and you can't make every interaction with your loved one, a a debate or an argument over their substance use. So I can understand why Kyle did that. I think, you know, yeah, I really, I don't, I wouldn't have anything that I would do different in this situation aside from, pulling her pulling Kim aside and being like do not have a baby with this man like do not have a baby with your crazy boyfriend who's clearly controlling and isolating you and enabling your substance use but that would probably be a conversation to have like in the next few days after this party I will just also point out while I'm talking about season two of Beverly Hills that this is the episode where Taylor Armstrong brings her psychiatrist to the Sir party to have like a group therapy session with all of her castmates. That is a whole, that is a red flag all and in of itself. I would never ever go to a party with a client to facilitate some sort of conversation with their friends in a public place and on camera. It's just like 
that is it's crazy to me that he did that and i yeah i don't have anything else to say about it except for that is absolutely crazy and also some of the best reality tv that i've ever seen in my life all right let's take a quick break before we jump into the final examples Okay, let's finish off with some examples from season five and season seven. So in season five, at this point, I think Kim has been to rehab twice and she is, this is her last season of being a full cast member. She will leave this, she will leave the show. I think she's asked to leave the show, but she's still a topic of conversation on the show after season five and actually comes back for reunions and appearances off and on. But in season five, we have this incident where Kim gets into a car with Lisa Rinna. They're sharing a car to drive to Eileen's house for poker night. And Kim is being super aggressive and like yelling at Lisa Rinna in the car kind of saying things that are a little odd and then when they get to the poker night she continues to be aggressive she goes after pretty much everyone in the room except for brandy because they're bffs by season five they've they've reconciled after the crystal meth accusations um but kim's just like she does not seem herself she seems very off and it ends up in a fight where Kyle and Brandy like slap at each other. It just like gets so out of control. Um, but then for the rest of the season, this becomes a topic of conversation. Was was Kim still sober um, that night? And we end up finding out that Kim had, or Kim, this is what Kim says. She endorses that she did take some sort of medication because at the time she was providing care for one of her ex-husbands who had been diagnosed with I believe lung cancer and he was living at home with her so that she could kind of help him and take care of him. And she was really run down. She was feeling anxious about things in general, like, and, and him dying, like they were kind of preparing for him to die. Um, and then like had this work obligation essentially. Cause we have to remember that even though there, <laughs> it seems to be social obligations, like this is part of their job. Kim has to go to, a certain amount of events to get paid for her appearances on the real housewives. And they do have contracts about, you know, they have to show up to a certain number of these types of things. So even though it's like a poker night at Eileen's house, it is a work obligation. And so Kim's ex-husband gives her who knows? I don't know if they said what it was. It was probably something like a Xanax or a Valium and she takes it and then subsequently acts the way that she does. Now, I don't want to get into, did Kim really take just a pill? Was she was she taking other things? Did she drink too? I, I don't know. I don't want to get into it. I want to kind of take Kim at her, at her face value. But this really serves to show how defensive Kim can be and how, mm, I'm going to say misguided, some of the women were in approaching Kim. So the way that Kim's defensiveness shows up is that Um, some of the women talk to her about like, Hey, you know, you've been sober for, I think it was a year at that point or two years at that point. You know, if you ever need any support, you need help finding a meeting, like let us know and we will, you know, we're happy to, to help you out. And Kim 
really does not respond well to that. She kind of shuts it down and um, talks about like, it doesn't matter. I'm doing fine. Even though previously had been in the same conversation, I've been saying like, I'm, I'm really lonely. And when I'm lonely is when I tend to drink. So I, I say that Kim is being defensive in that situation because it's like she brought it up, right? She brought up the I'm feeling lonely and this is a trigger for me and then gets upset when people offer advice. Um, and I think that, you know, someone can be struggling with a substance use issue and still be annoying, <laughs> right? Like just because or someone can have a mental health issue and still be annoying. And so, you know, Kim can maybe take some of that advice a little more graciously or even if she doesn't want to take it can say something like you know I appreciate it thanks I already have a sponsor or I already have a group or something like that you know what I mean like she she was a little rude and she didn't have to do that and her rudeness was not about her substance use it was like just she was annoyed and um and I can get why she's annoyed with people constantly in your face um about having a problem but at the same time, her substance use has impacted her coworkers in a pretty significant way. So it makes sense to me that her coworkers are also asking about her sobriety. So this is the, the dialectic that I would hold around substance use is, yes, it is someone's like private information and private personal battle or journey that they're going on. And when your private or personal issues start to impact other people, you have to be able to deal with that. You have to be able to deal with the consequences of that and either apologize and repair or remove yourself from the situation. It's the same thing like if somebody's depressed and their depression leads them to cut off their friends and not reply to text messages. On one hand, the depression is the problem, right? It's not that the person is a problem. The depression is the problem. And then when maybe you come out of the depressive episode or even in it, being able to reach out to that those friends and say like, I'm sorry, I don't have the capacity to be around other people right now and deal with the consequences that people might be upset or irritated. And, you know, hopefully provide an opportunity for those friends to understand a little bit more about how depression impacts you so that when the next episode comes around, it can be dealt with. But, you know, as soon as it starts to impact people around you, then we have to be able to deal with that. We have to be able to deal with those consequences. And I think Kim really struggled with dealing with those consequences um, of how her behavior impacted other people. Same with, like, Kyle. I don't think Kyle really understood how her, like, putting things under the rug and trying to smooth things over impacted her sister and made it harder for her sister to ask for help. If things are always pushed under the rug, why would you ever raise a problem? It's just going to get swept up. It's just going to get pushed away to the side and, and no one will be there to help you. So the p party or poker night at Eileen's house is already, like, a, t a tough situation, but it just also highlighted how there can be defensiveness on the part of the person with the substance issue and there can be um like some difficulty with bringing it up in a sensitive way um from the people on the other side and then this this just became like such a thing that they rehashed for the whole season about like how weird Kim was and this is where we start to see Lisa Rinna being a real sneaky snake um and she keeps bringing up Kim's behavior as this like point of gossip and this point of like wanting to stir the pot and I also think that that is very wrong that someone's substance use issues if they've impacted you 
like obviously you're allowed to talk about like how you reacted to someone or you know you're allowed to talk about your own personal feelings but when you when you do something like what Lisa Rinna does which is where she goes to every single person to tell her story and say isn't this horrible how I was treated like this you have to look at what's the function of that behavior is the function of that behavior just to feel better about yourself and what happened to you which in case okay maybe you do need an outlet for that or is the function of that behavior to change someone's opinion about another person, stir up gossip, stir up a fight, etc., etc.? If that's the function of the behavior, then I would probably recommend a behavior change. <laughs> and if the function of the behavior is just to like vent and share, then you know finding people that are actual confidants and not people that you know are going to go back to this person to tell them what they've been saying. And that is one of the things that is so annoying about the Real Housewives, especially the Beverly Hills, is that anytime they have a conversation about someone like behind their back, then one person will be like, we have to tell them what we said. It's only right. And it's like, no, (laughs) you you actually don't like you can talk about someone and not have to tell them what you said. And it just immediately gets taken out of context. It immediately becomes this like big issue. And that's why I think that Lisa Rinna had some ulterior motives when she went around and talked about Kim's sobriety so much because she knew that it would get back to Kim and she knew that it would her exaggerating the situation would get back to Kim even more exaggerated because that's how it works. That's the culture of the show. That's the culture of the group. And Lisa Rinna is no fool. She she knows and she did her homework before she got on the show. So she knew exactly how to get the group going. And that's just a little taste of my own personal bias against Lisa Rinna. I think she's the worst housewife. I think she's such a troublemaker. And um, yes, I will move on to my next point so that I'm not just bashing Lisa Rinna. Um, The other incident where a substance use rule becomes a feature in season five is when the ladies take a trip to Amsterdam and they're having dinner and they start to get into the conversation about Kim and Lisa Rinna again. And Kim is a little little snarky and starts to insinuate that she has some dirt about Lisa Rinna's husband, Harry Hamlin, and is going to like kind of out it at this dinner. Lisa Rinna has an absolutely insane reaction to this. She lunges across the table at Kim Richards with her hands up like she's going to choke her and then throws a wine glass on the table and it shatters and glass goes everywhere. Absolutely insane. 100% insane reaction to have to someone vaguely insinuating they have gossip about your husband. And then the weird thing is that everyone is on Lisa Rinna's side except for Brandy. Like, pretty much everyone is like, well, Kim started it. Kim is the problem because Kim has substance use issues. And I will say it seemed like Kim was sober at that time. Uh, I think it would have been pretty hard for her to have been drinking given how, like, close quarters they were and how much they had spent time together that day. So I do think she was sober at that time. And while she maybe did not make a great choice starting a fight with Lisa Rinna at the dinner table, the reaction that Lisa Rinna had to that was completely disproportionate. But it becomes, the conversation becomes about Kim because Kim has a history of this behavior. And this is a thing that can be quite tricky with people that have issues with addiction or substance use issues, is that the 
the kind of blame always gets put on the person, even if they've been sober for a while or even if they've been cutting back or them changing their relationship to substances, the kind of reputation becomes, well, you're a drunk, you'll always be a drunk, so you must have been at fault here. And that's not fair to the person dealing with the substance use issues. It's part of the stigma that can prevent people from asking for help or seeking out treatment. And so I think that this situation was handled very, very poorly within the show. And Kim, that I think this was kind of one of the examples where it's like Kim was kind of in the right and uh, should not have had glass shattered all over her and had someone like lunge across the table at her. And it's just, it's really disappointing to see that she got a disproportionate amount of the blame because there's this idea of like, well, she's the unstable one because she has this history of using these things and doesn't take into account the incredible amount of work that someone has to do to change their relationship to substance. The fact that for this entire season, Kim had come out of rehab and was doing her best, I think at the time, to stay sober and to not engage with substances the way that she had been before. And so I can get it being annoyed that this lady's been talking about you behind your back all season, you know, for months, and then you've just traveled internationally, you're tired, you feel she perceived an attack that maybe it wasn't an attack, but she she felt upset, and so she lashed out a little bit. I I get it. I do not get the smashing a glass. I think that was completely invalid in that situation. But again, I, I don't want to just bash Lisa Rinna. I want to I want to move on. Um, but I think that's a thing to just be conscious of is like if you, you know, maybe you're dealing with a loved one who is trying to cut down on substance use and you're getting reports from other people that like, oh, they're acting out again or they're doing this or they're so annoying. Like maybe trying to take that with a grain of salt because a lot of those perceptions could be based on past behavior and not current behavior. And the person with the substance use issue, like kind of keeping that in mind, like you might have to be a little bit on your best behavior to kind of earn that reputation back, earn that trust back, um, and being able to manage that defensiveness um, in a healthy way with supportive people. And then lastly, I'm going to jump to season seven, um, because we at least had some other people who were not Kim Richards who <laughs> dealt with substance use issues. Kim was not on the show at this time, but somehow she became a topic of conversation and she ended up coming to the reunion because she had, she'd been on the show in a limited capacity and there were so many conversations about her that they, they had her on at the reunion. Um, but basically the conversations around Kim started to turn to Kyle and Kyle got called an enabler on the show for the first time. I'm sure she'd been called an enabler on the internet <laughs> for many years, but uh, this is the first time anyone on the show specifically said she was an enabler. And our favorite Lisa Rinna was the one who said it. So, of course, <laughs> of course, of course she did. Um, but it, it did spark some interesting conversations, at least in my mind, of like what is enabling and I'll, I'll be really honest and say that I've had some conversations with other professionals in my field around the stigma that is inherent in the word enabling and that sometimes we label behavior as enabling when there really aren't many alternatives for 
the family member or loved one supporting someone with a substance use issue. Like, you know, we in the field tend to say things like, well, you're enabling if you give money to your family member who has a substance use issue because they're just going to use that money to buy drugs. We even say this about like unhoused people, right? Like you're enabling them if you give them cash because they'll just use it to buy drugs. And the thing is, is like, well, the other opportunity is what? Give them nothing? Like let them starve? Watch your loved one become homeless or, you know, like have to live on the street? Like what is the other option? And the kind of opinion or I guess point of view that I've come to through having some of these conversations is that we can't truly have a conversation about enabling in a country that does not have a social safety net. Like if America, the land of where I live, (laughs) had programs for people with serious mental illness or serious substance use issues or substance use disorders, if they had programs where those people could go either for free or through a single-payer health care, then it wouldn't be on the family members to do the care. It wouldn't be on the family members to make these decisions of, do I give my cousin $20 so that they can eat tonight, or do I hold it back because I might be enabling them? And to truly have a conversation about it, like there's a, there's a spectrum of enabling behaviors, right? And so I think a lot of what we label very quickly as enabling is really just people struggling to maybe maintain some boundaries, but really wanting to help their loved ones and not having the infrastructure to get them somewhere where they can have help versus watching them flounder or be unhoused or even die or or be seriously injured. And the other end of the spectrum could be something like actually purchasing drugs for someone, right? Or assisting them in uh, drinking to a point of excess or letting them drive while under the influence and not trying to take their keys away from them. Like those are behaviors that are enabling the person to do something dangerous, but doing something like letting your friend who has a problem with alcohol, letting them sleep on your couch because they just lost their housing. That's not enabling because where's that person supposed to go? right? Like the, this, this language of you have to hit the absolute rock bottom before you get better that comes out of 12 step has really done a, a lot of damage in my opinion to how people think about this. And I was even impacted by that and had these ideas of enabling is like, you have to be like basically a hard ass to the person that you're dealing with for enable for them to hit rock bottom so that they can get better. It, it's just, it's not true. It doesn't need to be like that. Um, And like for some people, the consequences of like losing a job or having a bad fight with a partner about substance use is like a rock bottom for them, is enough for them to say, I don't want to do this anymore. So we don't need to torture people and punish people and drag it out so that they truly hit a rock bottom or they hit the rockiest bottomest point so that they learn their lesson. I just, I, I disagree with that. And so I think that these conversations that were about Kyle enabling her sister were mean-spirited, mainly because they were coming from Lisa Rinna, (laughs) Um, and were rooted in this myth that because you offer support to someone with a substance use issue, it inherently means you're enabling them because they need to free fall to rock bottom in order to truly heal and become sober. The other way that substance use entered the chat in season seven was the appearance of Eden Sassoon as a cast member. She is the daughter of Vidal Sassoon, 
And a lot of her storyline included conversations about her sobriety as she had been sober for four years, I think, at the point she was on the show, and had lost her sister to substance use. Her mother also had substance use problems. And so Eden's kind of whole backstory and plotline revolved around this addiction. And she was very personally invested in Kyle and Kim's relationship because it was activating for her around her sister and losing her sister to substance use. Because she was getting information from Lisa Renna, which made it seem like Kim was in a very, very bad place and near death, became even more activating and Eden, Eden kept kind of like getting in the way, getting in the middle of Kyle and Kim's relationship, which spiraled outward and created a whole lot of problems for the show, which I recommend if you want some of that drama watching season seven. Um, But Eden also represents a way that this kind of like 12 step culture can manifest. And she, you know, had a lot to say about doing things a specific way because she's very invested in her like 12 step sobriety. And, you know, I've, in the past on the show, made reference to the fact that I'm not a huge fan of 12-step programs, particularly things like AA. Um, but I, I want to be, like, I guess more clear about the nuance there in that I think if it works for you, it works for you. And I'm not here to tell anyone they need to do something the same way that everyone else does it. And I think some people get a lot of benefit from 12-step programs because of the social aspect of just knowing that there's a dedicated group of people who have the same or similar issues as you can be an incredible source of social support. And because AA and other types of 12-step groups tend to be very decentralized, you can find groups that really fit your vibe and, you know, kind of have a culture that go along with what you're looking for. However, the ideology or the thing that people say makes 12-step work does not work. There's actually zero evidence that it works. And the kind of subjective report we get from people is that it's the social support. It's not necessarily the like step work or the dogmatic ideology of the group that contributes to their sobriety or abstinence or, or whatever. So I think Eden comes in with a very specific way of doing sobriety and gets on Kim for not doing the things that Eden is doing and my advice to Eden would be like slow down back up like you're reacting to someone based on your own personal trauma and you need to take care of yourself before jumping into this because I can I can totally understand why Eden was so activated by Kim and Kyle's reaction and I think she had an immense amount of grief and loss around her sister And I think that that was a warning, should have been a warning bell for her that I need to deal with my own stuff before kind of foisting myself in the middle of this um, interaction. If you want to talk about enabling, I would say Lisa Rinna enabled Eden to end up in this dynamic, but I digress. There were also a few moments where Eden um, would say, would kind of like validate the idea that Kim wasn't truly sober if she was taking certain medications or um, if she had, like, used certain pills. And this just echoes the um, belief in certain 12-step programs that you need to be completely abstinent in order to be truly sober or in order to, like, 
kind of meet your goals. And I think just like what I said about relationships and recovery, I think everybody's recovery is their own. I think that there are people who can have a drink of alcohol every once in a while. I think that there are people who can use recreational drugs if they are able to kind of get to the bottom of why they started using in a problematic way. Um, And there are people who just like don't want to use at all. They want to be abstinent and those are the choices that someone can make for themselves. So when I work in clinical practice with this, I usually talk to my clients about what is your relationship to substances or what do you want your relationship or boundaries around substance use to be rather than saying, how are we going to get you to be abstinent? Because I think it can just turn a lot of people off if my assumption is to be sober, you need to be abstinent. And that can contribute to people not seeking help if they don't want that life. They, they want to be able to maybe feel more in control of their substance use or they want to be more educated about their substance use, but they don't want to be abstinent. That's fine. That is a life that you can live as long as you're the one who feels in control of your substance use. So this is where I recommend like talking this through in therapy or finding a support group where people are open to those other types of possibilities. There are other groups aside from AA. There are groups like Women in Recovery. Um, the LA LGBT Center has recovery groups that are not 12-step. Um, the, uh, I think Rational Recovery still has groups out there. Um, there's alternatives. You don't have to just go to AA to get the social support. Like there are alternatives out there. And if AA works for you, great, go to AA. I'm happy. I'm happy for you to go to AA. Um, But I think my advice is just like, it should be individualized. And I think that Eden really represents this, that there's like one way to do it. And and Eden also is like very clean and she does Pilates 300 times a day. and (laughs) She only drinks green smoothies. And it's like, that may work for you, Eden. That's your way of being sober or being in recovery, but that's not how it's going to work for everyone. And then just a fun bonus one from season seven, which I think relates back to the reputation management, is that um, Dorit, one of the cast members, insinuates that Lisa Rinna has a problem with pills, which is damaging to Lisa Rinna's reputation. And so they didn't get back at her. Lisa Rinna questions and suggests that Dorit had a dinner party where all of her guests did cocaine in the bathroom. So this was just another way where like substance use becomes a way to like go after someone to target them. Um, It's like kind of the ultimate weapon these ladies have in their arsenal to go after each other and just continues to highlight this like reputation management aspect that's so important in the show that if your career depends on your reputation, then you're not going to want anyone anywhere to know or hear or associate your name with substance use. So I wove in throughout some of my suggestions for better ways to talk about addiction, but I'll just tack on to the end here some advice around language usage. You'll have noticed that I try to use words like people with substance use disorders or people with substance use issues rather than saying alcoholics, drunks, junkies, yada, yada, yada. We do want to use person first language in when talking about substance use because this is part of how stigma gets generated and perpetuated. I'm sure if I say the word junkie, there is an image that pops into your head and it is probably not a very nice image. If I say alcoholic or addict, there's an image that pops into your head and it's probably not a very nice image of a person 
who you would want to offer help to. So when we say things like um, a person with a substance use disorder or a person with an uh, addiction or a person who is in recovery, that puts the person first and can help sort of reduce the stigma. The less stigma there is, the more likely there are for people to get help. And it's just important to remove barriers because if we don't remove barriers, then people don't get help. Uh, I also avoid the word abuse um, when I can. So if you're talking about alcohol or other drugs, you can just say use. So like cocaine use, marijuana use, alcohol use. Uh, If you're talking about something that's like a prescription medication, like a Xanax, you could say Xanax misuse or used other than prescribed, although that's pretty long. So I'd probably just stick with misuse. Um, But that's just to indicate that like you can like people take Xanax for reasons, right? People are prescribed Xanax for reasons and they're they're using Xanax, but it's different than if they're misusing it or they're using it in a way that it was not prescribed to them. And all of these are listed in a nice table on the um, Department of or the National Institute on Drug Abuse website that I will link on my sources page so you can read it for yourself. But I'll just note that they include not using the term addicted baby or baby with addiction because babies cannot be born addicted to a substance. So this may not be as relevant now, but if you've ever heard people talk about like crack babies or um, like babies being born addicted to heroin and so like needing heroin when they're born or like, you know, some sort of treatment when they're born. They're not born with an addiction. They can be born with a, with a withdrawal symptom or syndrome. So they're having the symptoms of withdrawal from a substance. So depending on what the substance is that the um, pregnant person was using, they could have different symptoms. But the baby will not be born with like a dependence or an addiction to the substance. So... Terms like crack babies are not super effective for reducing stigma, so I would also examine if that pops up in your language at all. I don't think it comes up as often, uh, but just something to think about. So I'm going to end this episode here. I appreciate, as always, y'all listening all the way through, and I hope that I was able to teach you something. Um, And as always, I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.